Warning. The podcast you are about to experience may contain content that isn't suitable for younger audiences. So, if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Welcome to Villainology, a podcast revolving around our favorite personifications of humanity's darker side, and what truly makes them the scourge of their respective worlds. I am your host, Rob Mobley, and I can already tell you that you are in for quite an episode today. Uh, For those of you that are new here, the basic idea is that I present each guest with an opportunity to discuss at length someone who is widely considered to be a villain and to offer their own personal insight as to why they find them so intriguing. Uh, These opinions are totally subjective, and I find that hearing the thoughts of other people on someone you either love to hate or hate to love helps to really better understand these characters as a whole. Now, our guest today once made the horrible mistake of offering me a job at an immersive escape room that he was the creative director of in New York City in the before times. He is also an actor, a writer, a designer, a hater of dolls of every make and model, and he is the owner of Doors of Divergence, Mr. Christian Vernon. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, your company, Doors of Divergence, it's a brand new endeavor for you. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so uh, as you well know, I used to run an escape room franchise called I Survived the Room. Uh, Unfortunately, its parent company uh, was not quite able to survive uh, the COVID uh, plague at least in its current form. I know that they'll be moving on and doing some other things, uh, but currently uh, that building is shut down. The, the escape rooms are shut down, but then again, all escape rooms in, in the New York and, and a lot of places all over were uh, had to go into hiatus for a while, cocoon themselves away. So I have now taken those shows that were sort of under that umbrella, um, they're mine, moving them to a new place, sort of rebranding them and doing some new stuff with them. So they're moving to a, a place in Brooklyn, uh, I don't want to talk about too much about that because there are still uh, deals that have to be inked and ink that's yet to be dried. So mysterious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's some cool stuff that, that we've got planned, but um, the the general conceit of it is these are going to be a little more uh, interactive. You know full well that the escape rooms that we did, because that was the job that you're talking oh, about. Yes. Was, uh, you so talentedly uh, came through and performed... Uh, Dr. Kavanaugh, one of our um, antagonists uh, in the sanatorium. Uh, You know a bit about playing villains yourself. Story of my life. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so we have actors in the room sort of guiding along the story and uh, have started to, you know, have created this, these escape rooms where audience choice matters and determines um, as they go through which puzzles they end up solving, which endings they end up getting, uh, how the story plays out. And we've decided now to sort of take those individualized things and really sort of connect them directly, take more of like a Mass Effect kind of feel to it. So you play one, and then depending on what ending you get, you can take that into the next one, and then it can completely change what your game is, and then take that to the third chapter. So you can continually replay and replay and see how your choices affect as you play through and which puzzles you end up interacting with, how the actors change, that sort of thing. Well, that was the thing I found the most intriguing about this particular company and and these shows was that it was a 
solid blending of both escape rooms and immersive theater. We've had this conversation before, but I mean, I'm of the mindset that immersive theater up until now was the future of theater. But now with COVID having all but wrecked live performances as we know it for the foreseeable future, what changes do you believe need to happen in order to adapt to this new normal? Yeah, immersive's really tricky in this way too, right? Because at least with other, you know, the- uh, with traditional theater, you got to worry about the actors, but then you got to worry about the audience, but you don't have to worry about the interplay, right? Absolutely. There's at least social distance between the actors and, and the audience. Immersive is just, you know, throws that fourth wall out the window. Uh, and so now we really cannot put a whole bunch of people in a room and have them sort of interact and touching each other. And I mean, the Sleep No More model is donezo as long as COVID's still sort of, you know, around. Ugh, don't, don't, um, don't, don't, don't break my heart like that. Ugh, I I, that. Look, I they haven't so much. <laughs> I know. And they, they, they haven't announced anything as far as, you know, permanently shutting down. And I know that there's probably money out the wazoo, but who knows? But there have been a number of, of shows that have, uh, of bitten the dust, uh, this summer uh then she fell especially i never got to see that one too and that really hurts Uh, that i heard that was an incredible show yeah and really intimate too small audience sizes uh very tracked in terms of where you went sort of thing and um yeah uh, really interesting um also Um, source material of one of my favorite pieces of classical literature of all time so now i know our listeners are getting anxious so here (laughs) it is the moment you've been waiting for tell us christian vernon which villain have you chosen? I would love to talk today about the pious pissant, the scion of hypocrisy, uh, the uh, absolute religious zealot, otherwise known as Judge Claude Frollo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame. <gasps> you think you've outwitted me, but I'm a patient man. And gypsies don't do well inside stone walls. What are you doing? I was just imagining a rope around that beautiful neck. I know what you were imagining. Such a clever witch. So typical of your kind to twist the truth, to cloud the mind with unholy thoughts. Well, no matter. You've chosen a magnificent prison. But it is a prison, nonetheless. Set one foot outside, and you're mine. Okay, so what made you choose good old Frollo? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, First off, Hunchback is easily my favorite Disney movie of all time. Absolutely. It's... My top choice for best soundtrack of any Disney movie of all time. Uh, best music, best lyrics. Uh, it's he's also I mean Notre Dame de Paris is is also one of my favorite books. Um, it is Notre Dame Cathedral is easily my favorite place on earth. Uh, I've been fascinated with it since I was a child. Um, and Frollo is kind of unique at least in the Disney villain canon, which I think is where a lot of people listening to this are probably going to have their jumping off point. Certainly. Um, I think that, you know, the Disney Frollo is, is easily the most palatable, most relate, uh, most understanded and, and understood and um, uh, 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 visible 
version Absolutely. of the character. That being said, there are a number of versions of this character, uh, and all of which kind of have different, um, slightly different motivations and, and, and backstories and levels of relatability. How but, old were you when you first experienced this? Or I'm assuming that your first instinct or your your first instance with this story was the Disney film as a kid. Yeah. Unless you read the book first, in which case you're <laughs> much brainier than I thought. <laughs> not saying you're not brainy. I was just like, wow, you already read Hugo at that age? Good yeah, night. no, I I would not have had the patience for Hugo. <laughs> uh, especially Notre Dame de Paris when I because what the movie came out in '96, something so like I, that. Yeah. yeah, so I would have been 11 at the time, and no, at 11 I wouldn't have had the the patience for that book. But that's because <laughs> the the book is great and the story is great, but there are long dry passages that you have to get through. But that's Hugo, right? That's yes. Les Mis, that's Notre Dame de Paris. And considering the book was kind of written to call attention to the fact that the building was a shithole at the time, you know, that there are big sections where he's just like, you know, all of these stories that I'm telling you, it's, it's hard to imagine them happening now because if you walk into the cathedral, like it's, it's run down, it's broken. And I mean, that book, him writing it, the whole point of it was for him to say, Hey, Notre Dame's kind of run down. We ought to fix it. Uh, He'd be rolling in his grave if he knew that the fire that happened. Oh yeah. But I mean, it did work. It worked like it, it, cause he was one of those authors who's actually like really popular in his time. So a lot of people paid attention and started demanding that they fix it. And so they did. So with him, I mean, do you, uh, I mean, we just kind of established that you first experienced the story uh, through the film. Yeah. Uh, do you do you remember how it made you feel? What was it that you initially took away as a kid? I mean, obviously, with repeat viewings, you're able to kind of form a, a, a deeper opinion on something. But do you remember that first visceral feeling you had about it? Yeah. Well, I really remember uh, the shot in Out There when quasi is up on the spire and the camera's just sort of swinging around and he's just like hanging off and tom hulse is hitting that high note Mm. uh and it's great it's phenomenal um i really remember that just being like wow but i remember hellfire scaring the crap out of me oh the the animation alone in that one i mean i said it in the last episode that i think that that is easily if not number one but in my top three disney villain songs of all time Mm -hmm, just because there's it comes from such a human place with his with his wants that it's it's knowing that his desire is simply to possess this woman and it's it's wrong on so many levels but on the same time you're like I know people like this. And I mean, Mm -hmm. granted, no one's going to go and burn someone at the stake because they don't agree or they don't want to be with them. I always find that that was just the strongest depiction of of lust and and greed and desire. Yeah, well, I mean, but it's, it's not just lust and greed and desire, though. There's a deeper level to it, I feel. And I've picked this up on like multiple, you know, reviews. It's it's what she represents. It's the fact that she is the sole, f- as far as he can tell, the sole flaw in his moral fiber. And she has to either be destroyed or she has to be converted. And that's where the religious zealotry kind of comes in. Uh, and it's, I think it's why this character is so, especially in as I've gotten older, is so compelling to me because... 
he's a real character in terms of like maybe an exaggerated version, but we see these people. Absolutely. In the world around us. We see these people in you know, in our in our country, in other countries. Like this this sense of this this high-minded I am more pious and pure and correct than the people around me. I know what is best. And the the zealotry and the Machiavellian tactics to to enact their will coming from this sort of thing there, there's no there's no reasoning with them so i mean so yeah it's 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 less for me it's less that he just needs to possess her i mean that is part of it but it's also the fact that like you are the thing that is making me impure and that's i think that's what hellfire is kind of all about it's 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 almost like he either needs to purge himself of her or she needs to become one with him yes exactly Oh, it's um, mine or mine alone. God, that lyric is just. Mm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, so the lyric that actually introduces Frollo to us in that movie um, is easily one of my favorite in any of Stephen Schwartz's lyrics. Which one? So, right the first time we see him, right, we're getting the Clopin's sort of um, intro in, and the gypsies being. Oh, hold on, we should we should probably address the elephant in the room for a second. So, obviously, the word that I just said is all over the source material. You you gotta love that anti-Zinganism, you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna try my best to say Romani here. Uh, Right. I just slipped out of me because I wasn't thinking. No, but I mean, it's Uh, it's so I'm looking at the lyrics, right? Yeah, exactly. And I'm looking at the lyrics right now, and it's like, five times on the page, so it just sort of slipped out. Uh, I do apologize to your listeners if anyone's who is offended by that term, and I totally get it. Uh, if I do happen to say it, I might, if I say it and I'm quoting a lyric, then I will I, I will attempt to, to change it. I'm going to be as sensitive as I possibly totally. can about it. But so as he's, ch- he's, you know, chasing the Romani family, and we get the lyric of a figure whose clutches were iron as much as the bells of Notre Dame. Which is just the, the imagery in that Tells you everything you need to know. Exactly. And this is interesting, like, juxtaposition between him and the bells. And they're both iron, and his clutches are iron. And then we get immediately afterwards, Judge Claude Frollo longed to purge the world of vice and sin, and he saw corruption everywhere except within. Like, oh, that, that, that was like Stephen Schwartz when he was in his prime. Yeah. <laughs> writing incredible lyrics. Yeah. And... I think following that, I mean, after the chase of following Quasimodo's mother uh, through the streets, and spoiler alert, I'm hoping by this point you've seen some aspect of it, or else what are you doing listening to this episode? <laughs> right. His mother dies, uh, and the, the priest is berating him for trying to kill this baby, and he points to the statues of Notre Dame, and that shot of them all suddenly having eyeballs and just staring daggers at Frollo. And you see this small moment of fear. I believe Clopin speaks it in in the song. Ah, oh, you just see that one little moment mm. of vulnerability where he's he's like, "Oh, I'm facing my own mortality." Yeah, my own. yeah, yeah. He actually says he says uh, felt a twinge of fear for his immortal soul. Yes, and it's like clear. It's like this doesn't happen to him often, but for like the first time in a while, he's been like, "Oh God, I actually have to toe the line. I'm not like 
I can't just coast off on my my piety and my virtue like this is a thing that I have you know I have to work on. Oh, that shot of like the entire King's Row and the front, and oh. then there's like one point where there's like a demon just like turning around looking at it and being mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, you gonna dunk that baby? You gonna dunk <laughs> that baby? Are we interrupting?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, but but here's the thing that like what's what's interesting is like that's. That's actually a would be because it's okay. So I don't know exactly what year it's supposed to be, although it's got to be before fourteen seventy, because I know Phoebus makes a joke about the wine getting poured in his wound, and he's like, "Ah, fourteen seventy Burgundy." So it's got to be after that. But uh, can, I mean, can it, you tell? This, I just recently rewatched it. No, well, I mean, this is also. <laughs> I mean, I, I watched it yesterday. Technically, it's a prequel to Beauty and the Beast. Is it really? Because you see Belle in Out There. No, you don't. You do. I, I do you shit really? you not. She is 100% walking through in her blue dress with the white apron, walking through the city streets. And I'm like, wait, oh, what? It- this is before they move to the small provincial town. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Because I was like, what is she doing I just mean, like hobnobbing in Paris? I, I think it was just more or less the, the animators being like, oh, let's let's throw a little Easter egg in there. But, you know, my head canon, this is all yeah, I don't, Im- immediately I- before what happens in Beauty and the Beast. I, I feel like I'm pretty sure the Beauty of the Beast and of Hunchback of Notre Dame can't possibly even take place <laughs> in the same century. I mean, <laughs> they did have talking gargoyles in this movie, but then again, an argument can be made okay. that that was all Let's... simply in Quasimodo's brain. Yeah, okay, so I, I absolutely believe that the gargoyles only talk in Quasimodo's brain. He's the only one that ever sees them, with the one occasional, sh- with the one exception where the goat sees Jason Alexander's gargoyle move which that's the one black mark on this movie i'm not a fan of that song that he has uh i i could i could on, you don't you don't love take, a george I could pep take talk or leave song? The, no i really don't it's just it's just so compared to everything else in the the soundtrack and in the movie it's just so like camp and cheese and everything else is just beautifully orchestrated and dark and gothic and interesting i am glad they got rid of that song in a, in exchange for made of stone in the stage show yeah because that song oh i weep every time i hear it it's it's because they use the the same i forgot that they, that it was the same line uh we're made of stone but we thought you were made of something stronger yeah and it's just it's just such a good line and uh but back to frollo do you i mean we had mentioned before that we see people like this in today's world I mean, they're, they're, uh, I think that's what uh, makes Frollo such a timeless character. Do you consider his actions evil or simply misguided? I think there's a switch point. I think he's misguided up to a point. Here's the thing. I think he is knowingly hypocritical uh, to a degree. Uh, I think he's very much a letter of the law person versus the spirit of the law, right? There's all these moments where he's like, Okay, well, I guess I can't drown the child. <laughs> oh. And the arch the archdeacon is telling me that I have to raise him as my own. Which by the Fine. way, the only person that has ever been able to tell Frollo no and he listens. Yeah. Yeah, it's the archdeacon. Multiple times that happens. Uh, but even then, he's trying to like get around what the archdeacon's saying. He's like, "All right, fine. I'll keep him." But you got to keep him here and I'll like, you know, feed him and, and, and whatnot, but keep him here because honestly, I can't bring him with me. I can't leave him, you know, just put him away where, where no one can see him uh, sort of thing. And it's it's very much like 
as long as I kind of like sort of cheat, but I'm not, you know, the letter of the law kind of then then I'm then I'm okay. I think he's aware of this, and I think that like when his own hypocrisy comes to play, he's able to just sort of explain it away. I, I and I think that's all fine until until Hellfire, until we come out of the end of Hellfire. And this is why I think he's so unique as far as Disney villains go, especially. He's the only villain I can think of off the top of my head that has a series of moments where he has to really sort of reflect about himself and view his own faults, right? And come to terms with those things. And there's there's a decision that can be made in Hellfire, right? There, there's, there's an opportunity for him to go, okay... I'm really proud of how virtuous I am. And this is all this is all done in prayer, right? In, in song, but in prayer. I'm really virtuous. You know I'm proud of my virtue. Why is this woman tempting me? It doesn't make sense. I'm so much better than every all the 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 and it, you know, he's got this like it's so self-righteous. Yeah, it's it's incredibly self-righteous, right? And he's got this, I'm better than the rabble, he hates the peasantry. He's got this woman where he's like, she she tempts me. This shouldn't be possible. I am I, I am your pure vessel of, of God's will. Like, why? And then he realizes, you know, it's not, he, come, he can either say, it's my fault and I need to deal with this. But what's the conclusion that he comes to? It's not my fault. It's God's plan. He made the devil so much stronger than the man. It's very clear that if he were discussing somebody else, if somebody else had this temptation, he wouldn't hesitate to say that's your flaw. You've got to deal with it. Absolutely. The moment, the moment that it's his flaw, he can sort of justify it away, right? Well, I'm better than them, so it can't be me. Uh, I'm pure and and virtuous, and I know that. So yeah, he has this this moment in Hellfire where he can either realize he's the problem. Or we can say, no, she's the problem, and she needs to burn. Or she can agree to marry me, live piously, give up her, her filthy heathen ways, and then I will have converted her and turned her to good and look how great I am, sort of thing. But in his mind, this is all virtu- like this is all virtuous. He's looking at that, that cathedral, and, you know, keep the entire movie, he's... In look at like, and I love how they did it. Look at look at Notre Dame Cathedral, and across the way you see the Palace of Justice, and it's all angular and sharp spikes, and it looks like a villain's castle. Yeah, the and juxtaposition but, of the architecture there is yeah, just visually oh, stunning. So great, and the fact that you can see Notre Dame Cathedral across the way, and it's you know it's his foil, but he's looking at it, being like, "This is this is what I aspire to. I, I live to serve God in, in this holiness and this righteousness." This is a villain who. Really, you never get the sense of him sort of reveling in his own evil the way you do a lot with a lot of other Disney films. You know, you get people who are, I know this is bad, but I'm in it for me and I just want, you know, he is completely morally justified in his views. I think that's what separates this movie from the rest of the Disney Renaissance film canon. Like, they're all great with their own, you know, for their own reasons, they're all fantastic movies. But this just feels like the most sophisticated out of all yeah. of them. I think partly because it is based on a pre-existing novel that's not a fairy tale whatsoever. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, it's it's very adult. And mm-hmm. yet, I mean, somehow you are able to convey this in a children's movie and for them to still get it. I mean, that, that just is a testament to how timeless a story it is. Yeah. And how people still revisit it and people still talk about it and the fact that you know that it took forever for them to even bring that musical from germany over here because disney didn't want to 
kill Esmeralda on stage. Yeah. Which... Yeah, which, spoiler alert, that's what happens in the book. Yeah, she gets hanged in the book, though. She doesn't Yeah, burn. she gets hung in the book. She, she almost gets executed once. Quasimodo saves her. And then, then she gets, uh, she gets hung again. And Phoebus is in the crowd watching. So that's the thing. In other source material, you know, Phoebus in your your knight in shining armor. Phoebus the, is a Disney dick. Movie, he's horrified. He actually, I I actually feel like Phoebus is more of a villain in the book than Frollo is. Because he, um, I mean, I'm I'm not caught up on my Frollo, so to speak. But I do. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed at that. Uh, I mean, I do know that he you. was in. <laughs> You're the true villain of this podcast. You and your bad portmanteaus. I did what I had to do. I did what How I had to do. How dare you, sir? How uh... dare you, sir? <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here with that. Well, he was engaged to. Uh, I mean, I, I, ha- I admittedly haven't read the novel. I've I've done done some research into it, and I've I've watched the. The, the the Lon Chaney movie that was done, mm-hmm. and there was a character that popped up that I was not even remotely familiar with, which was the Lady Fleur de Lis, who oh yeah Phoebus was engaged to yeah, and there was also uh, the poet um, Gringoire. That's what his name was. Yes, yeah, yeah, Esmeralda's husband. Yeah, yes. Who the only reason that that she is his husband is because he found the Court of Miracles, and in order for him to escape, he either had to marry someone that belonged to the Romani clan or die. Yeah. That was yep. the only way he We're, was getting out of there. Yeah. So so there there's a whole other thing, right? And there's it's it's a little problematic. Um very problematic. It's and even the Disney depiction of the Romani uh in this movie is bad. I'm just going to say it's just bad. It's 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 racist. But we didn't really, you know, it, Different time. It was a different time. Slightly different time. I mean, it's not. It's 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 it doesn't excusable at any time. But this was considered acceptable, and nobody, you know, people weren't aware that there were people that had a problem with this, as rightly so. Um, But there, there's an interesting point to be made that when when Quasi and Phoebus in the movie finally show up to the Court of Miracles, be like, "Hey, Frollo's on his way." and he's going to murder you all, their reaction is to just tie them up and be like, hey, we're going to do a fun song and dance number about how we're going to murder you for no reason whatsoever other than you came here. Uh, and they actually, you know, the, the lyric that we find you perfectly innocent, which is the worst crime of all, so you're going to hang. You're and like, it's like, oh, okay. So much yeah. for us having any sort of empathy toward you. Yeah, so it's like, well, who, uh, uh, in this movie, it's like, who are the good guys other than, like, Esmeralda, Quasimodo, and, 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 you know, of course, Esmeralda comes in and is like, hey, no, I know these people, it's fine, they're with me. And it's, uh, it's strange to think, in terms of that, from that point of view, was Frollo right? Mm, yeah, I mean... I mean, so, he obviously wasn't. He 100% no. wasn't. But it's interesting to think that if you are viewing them from this uh, um, a monstrous standpoint where they literally kill anybody that tries to come into their sanctum but i so in in the world of at least in the movie we're talking about talking about the movie because there's there's slightly there's differences as well in 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 terms of of Esmeralda's clan and whatnot in the books but in the world of the movie right what frollo sees is what was depicted is you know he sees a group of performers who are loud and rambunctious and Pole dancing. Esmeralda is, as far as I know, the only Disney princess who pole dances 
in her movie, I believe. Uh, unless I can't think of another a, one. I don't think she's actually considered Is she not considered, considered a, Disney princess? I don't Is think she not so. Is Princess Castle? No, there's, uh, mm. they, they have very strict rules. I mean, she's definitely a prominent person. But, right. I mean, you have someone like Kida from Atlantis Lost Empire who is a princess, who's not mm-hmm. a Disney princess. Really? Okay. It's it's weird. Well, it's a Disney movie, but they're not... It's a weird canon that... That's a whole different rabbit hole we can go down. <laughs> uh, well, that's for your, your spinoff. That's Princessology. Oh, oh, um, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, so he sees, you know, this group that's loud and obnoxious and colorful. Like, how colorful they are compared to... I mean, in terms of clothing and, and design and whatnot... It, compared to the rest of the the way the peasantry lives and you know they're not they don't own property and they don't have legitimate businesses and they live underground uh and their own their own little secret society and as far as he known their children are deformed monsters like in frollo's eyes they're like yeah no these people are sent from the devil yeah they, they are straight up the descendants of sodom and gomorrah like yeah, what are I they mean, doing here that i mean that's yeah and that and is that is that you know, is that just his opinion? Is that stuff that he's been taught? It's interesting because, you know, in contrast, you have the archdeacon, the actual man of the church, being like, no, you're all God's children. Come on in, sanctuary. You know, uh, talk to God. I'm sure he can help you. Keep on, the archdeacon is like, yeah, come on in, child, and then does nothing to help her. And she's like, oh, man, everyone, you know, why do people hate, why do, why do people uh, hate other people that are different? And the archdeacon is just like, I don't know, talk to God. <laughs> That's like all of his help in the movie. Oh yes. Well, and and the other thing that they in the novel and in the musical they go into is that uh, Quasimodo is. Well, I I don't know if they actually go into it in the novel. Correct me if I'm wrong. In the musical, they do that. Quasimodo is the son of Jeon, so technically, yeah, yeah. So that's not in the book. Uh, but either way, right? Because this is a burden in the movie, right? It's literally something that's put on him as a test by God. In the book and the musical, there are both more more specific reasons to tie him to Quasimodo. In the musical, his brother, Jeon, is um, sort of a lout and an alcoholic. And I think he has all his money stolen by a, a Romani, if I'm not mistaken. Or there's, so, there's something there with his brother's past that, that makes Frollo really... Ups, that gives Frollo more reason to hate the Romani. Right. And I think they're both like adopted by the church. Frollo goes the really pious route. His brother like succumbs to alcoholism and and has all his money stolen and and comes to him on his deathbed with this deformed child and is like, please take care of him. Frollo's going to kill him and then he finally is guilty. He's like, oh, maybe God's testing me and chooses by himself of his own accord to raise the child. And in the book, Frollo is walking through the foundlings beds in the church, the children that just sort of get brought in because they're found uh, uh, abandoned. Like, in the movie, Frollo lies to Quasimodo and is like, your mother abandoned you on the steps of the church. Right. He, he, when he didn't in actuality, say that I killed your mother. Yeah, yeah, he literally chased her down and kicked her on the steps. And she just dies pretty graphically. There's no blood, but that's a pretty graphic death for a Disney yeah, movie. Yeah, a head injury on the stone steps, that's not... Yeah, and it's not like she just sort of falls out of frame either. It's like she falls down. You see her just sort of land, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yes. Um, no, you, you see you, her you kick see, You see the connection. Her, you know, yeah. Uh, it's actually very graphic for a Disney movie. But yeah, no, see, so he comes in, he finds, he's going through the foundling's bed, and I think it's, the holiday is called Quasimodo Sunday or something like that. I'm not sure why, but he finds the deformed infant, Quasimodo, on one of the beds and chooses him 
and names him Quasimodo after the holiday, but also it's, you know, it's fitting for his thing. So, so he actually he actually chooses this child. Did they ever say There's why nothing, he chose him? I have to go back and reread. I'm not sure exactly. I think there was some sort of, like, choosing this child, there'd be more difficulty and it would prove his piety or something. Again, I think it was kind of self-serving. Sure. Either way, it's like, it's, it's, he chooses, in, in each of these, you know, he chooses his brother's son because God's testing him and in doing so, it's proving his piety. He, it's, it's not about doing keep, the right thing. It's not, yeah, it's not about doing the right thing. It's, it's, you know, if I keep this child, in all versions of the story, uh, I keep this child it's all about me. I'm proving that I'm a more righteous person. It's not about, I need to help this kid. You know, Quasimodo is just a tool for him. He even says it in the movie. He's like, maybe this child will one day be of use to me. Uh, which he ends up being when he actually leads Frollo to the Court of Miracles. Which Can we just talk about how epic level of a move that was? For Frollo to, in the movie? To, to follow them like, to the Court of Miracles? Yeah, but, but he's literally just like, I know where they're going. Uh, quasi, and I'm going at daybreak, mm-hmm. and then he's like, "Cool," and he knows exactly what Quasimodo's gonna do. It, like, it, cool. it was very cunning. It was a very yeah. cunning move. That's like an epic level chess move. Um, final thoughts about Frollo. Uh, what is it about him that remains timeless to you? I think Frollo's sort of Frollo's capacity for hypocrisy is something that I think we all have. I think it's something that it's actually kind of frightening to look at and go, you know, oh, the rules apply to everyone except for me because I'm better. This sense of like superiority for him and and the the sort of the zealotry and that can occur right when he doesn't get what he wants. Right. Um, He's sort of happy for a while to kind of like arrest Romani when he can here and there. But once once he kind of comes out of the other end of Hellfire, he makes this sort of decision to just go, you know what, I'm going to exterminate all of them. And that is that is horrifying, absolutely horrifying, because that's, you know, those villains exist in human history. The demonification of the other and the blaming that because he comes through and he he blames this social uh, racial group for. He puts all of the the evils and 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 demons of society on them, and says, "If I can just get rid of them, Paris will be pure. It will be better." And that, I mean, does that sound familiar? It, that, that you can, yeah. I got a little goosebumps there. I was like, "Oh, yeah. shit!" <laughs> like it's this is a thought that like well, it's round and round again will always come up, and we have to be watchful for that sort of rhetoric. Uh, when it comes out of the the mouths of the people that we put into elected office, it's important to note that that Frollo in the movie is actually the minister of justice, right? He's mm. he's he's supposed to be the uh, the, the head because he's not he's he's a religious man, but in the movie he's not part of the church, right? Uh, which in the book he actually is. He's you know he's actually the archdeacon of um, of Notre Dame. But that or, that was a whole like thirteen. What was it, 13 yeah, points? Yeah, so that, that goes back to, like, the Nampy 13 points from, like, the early days of cinema, and, like, one of the things they said was, you know, you can't cast clergy and, and people who are in the church as, like, villains, right? So, like, the Lon Chaney movie and all the original versions of the film, they changed it. He was never the, like, it was, the villain was Jahan. Yeah, he wasn't even the villain in the, in the Lon Chaney yeah. movie. Yeah. 
Or, or yeah, or uh, in other versions, he was just the judge and the archdeacon was out there and the Disney went by the same sort of route because they didn't want to cast him as a member of the church either because Disney's trying to be family friendly. Yeah, it's, it's, this is what makes him timeless for me is that, like there is, there's a very real element to people in power blaming a group that they don't agree with for all the faults and evils of society and going out of the way to try and take care of them. And when the progress is too slow, they start being super expedient. I mean, just let that montage of him just getting more and more draconian in his methods after Hellfire comes out, right? And he's just like, find her. I'll give you 10, get to inform on them. All right, now dump their, dump their stuff in the river and then see if they'll inform on me, uh, on, on, on their fellow brethren. Uh, and then, you know what? I'm I'm gonna then he goes out and he actually just goes and to murder townsfolk right he doesn't even go to murder members of the Romani he murders three people that he suspects were harboring them I need to make mm-hmm. an example right and that's when he just sort of gets completely unhinged and obviously that's when Phoebus sort of chooses to chooses, chooses side to, at that point. yeah exactly but which <laughs> my favorite moment I think in the movie it's the funniest line is. After Hellfire, the whole thing with the fireplace coming up and like the red headed, red hooded demons coming out of the side, whatever, right? And then he does the whole thing. <laughs> you know where I'm going that. with this. He, the next morning, comes up to Phoebus to be like, We're going to find Esmeralda. He comes out of the carriage, all red eyed, uh, uh, super tired looking. Phoebus goes, Have a rough night. <laughs> and Frollo goes, I had a little trouble with the fireplace. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a good line and I laugh every time. It's it's great cuz you actually like you often don't get the full tragic kind of I mean he's he's pretty bad at the beginning. But we get like at least the tail end of his sort of tragic fall off. Absolutely. Um, which you know in this movie which is just really compelling to watch and then you just watch him go into complete insanity and evil. Um but yeah, that's I think that's what makes him such a good villain is that you we this capacity for his actions we've seen before historically and are can this sort of potential lives in in people it's it's frightening really to watch. Thank you so much for being on the show Christian. This was yeah, an of course. incredible uh, conversation just now. Um, for those of you out there, if you feel so compelled, uh, I'm dropping a link to the Bail Project in the description if you wish to make a donation. It is a wonderful organization, especially in this time of unrest and injustice. And know that any help you can give them will go a long way. Uh, thank you to Ross Lampert for composing the theme song to this podcast. He's a brilliant dude. And if you're in the market for any sort of music production needs, uh, head over to his website at daggerandink.com. And uh, thank you, listener, for carving out a little bit of time for us today. Uh, if you like the show, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Villainology Podcast. And drop us a comment on who you'd like to see discussed next. Hopefully we'll see you next time. Stay foolish, mortals. ha 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 ha.